Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For the last eight years, nearly 350 interviews, Art of the Cut has been talking with the world's best editors in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. Today, we're speaking with director and editor Jessica Kingdon about her Oscar-nominated documentary, Ascension. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Or check out the video version of this podcast, including clips that we couldn't share on this audio version of the podcast at Frame.io's YouTube channel. Jessica was the director, producer, cinematographer, and editor on this Oscar-nominated film. She's been a producer on the feature film Landing Up, and she's won awards for her documentary shorts, including Commodity and 808 How We Respond. She also produced, directed, and wrote the short film Clippings. Not only are you the editor, but you're also the director and one of the cinematographers. So you really have got your hands in all the aspects of it, but we want to talk about editing. One of the things that I wanted to start with is the way the film starts. So tell me a little bit about your choice of the very first shot. It's a shot from above of a rooftop and people walking right along the edge. Like why choose that and then how it goes into the rest of the film? The film is overall kind of an unconventional film where it's full of these visual puns or free associations involved um, and we have no central characters and no narration or interviews. So the film is ultimately more visually driven and ideas driven. In terms of that first shot that you're referencing, I didn't know that that was gonna open the film until maybe midway through Mm. editing. But in that one film, there's so many juxtapositions that we see and it kind of embodies a lot of the ideas in the film. So the film is loosely about the pursuit of the Chinese dream and what that looks like today. And it's about this quest for upward mobility and a study of materialism that's present both in China but in the rest of the world. And so I thought this one shot exemplified a lot related to the extremities of wealth, income inequality, um, and there's an inherent tension and drama in that shot. It's this rooftop pool that's on the top of luxury residential building. And this woman who presumably works there is teetering on the edge of it as she's trying to clean the pool and there's no netting or anything. So even when I was just watching this as a bypasser, I happened to be shooting something else then. I was shooting at the Butler School, funny enough. And I saw that out of the window and it was just such a breathtaking shot. And so there's so much inherent tension in it. So we got it and then it just made sense to open the movie that way. And then the movie continues from that point on with guys using bullhorns to try to bring workers to go work for their company. Talk to me about starting from that point. Yeah, so this scene is a low-wage job market at companies such as Huawei or Foxconn, which are huge tech companies. I only found this structure towards the end, even though it's quite obvious, and the structure is loosely ascending the class ladder. So in the film, we start off kind of at the base of the tower of capitalism, where people are looking for these low-wage jobs to work at companies like Huawei and Foxconn, which makes iPhones. Overall, the film is about a physical exploration of these hidden economies that power day-to-day consumer-driven lifestyles. So that's part of why the film starts in that low-wage market and then 
ends with a rare earth mineral mine. And rare earths are what are used to make smartphones and other like high-tech devices. Even though it's not explicitly said in the film, the film is bookended actually by these physical sites of economies that have to do with the tech industry and consumerism. Talk to me about the evolution of the movie, how it started out maybe and how it evolved throughout the process. Editing this film was a crazy process. <laughs> Since, like I mentioned earlier, we have no central characters, we have no narration, and it's more conceptually driven. It almost could have been anything in a way. In some ways it was harder because that I had to impose a structure mm. and a way of thinking and a way of understanding the world, but simultaneously I could be more flexible. So the scenes were, I thought of them as modular, like building blocks, I could move them around. Before you explain that, let's talk about what some of those building blocks were. What are some of the scenes, what are some of those modules? So the film is loosely structured in three parts. The first part has to do with labor and factories. The second part has to do with this quest for upward mobility and aspiration and new types of labor created out of the new elite class in China. And then the final part is about leisure and consumerism. And there's cracks in between all of this, of course, but that's the overall kind of main structure. And the building blocks of this in part one we focus in, in factories and labor, and so I selected different types of factories that both would have things that are immediately identifiable for an audience, such as plastic water bottles, Trump paraphernalia, because at the time it was during his re-election campaign, but also things that you don't exactly know what they are. So at the beginning you had mentioned the spicy duck neck factory where these duck necks are being sorted, something to do with smartphone screens, and I kind of wanted all of the factories to blend in into this almost continual factory, so it feels like we're being carried along by something where we think we're settling into one place, but we're not actually settling into one place. In part two, which we can talk about the transition later, but the modules had to do with different types of training schools. So we have etiquette schools, butler schools, bodyguard school, a school for being an entrepreneur. We have sections of different types of live streamers who are trying to create their own brands and promote their products. And then the modules at the end we had something to do with malls, something to do with water parks, something to do with the elite class at a dinner party. So a lot of it was really this tension between scenes that had dialogue and had more explicit ways to make meaning out of it. And then these scenes that are more slippery, that could be read in any number of ways maybe don't have as much dialogue, or maybe the dialogue leaves you wondering what they're talking about. A lot of it was just playing with something where you can extract meaning and something where you have to be left being comfortable enough to just take things in without trying to make meaning of them. Early on, there was a point where someone says, a sense of worth in the Chinese dream. You used a bunch of jump cuts. Can you talk to me about the value of jump cuts and why you use them, why you chose to use them at that point? You're the first person to ask me this question about it, and I'm glad that you noticed. Obviously you do as an editor, since I think it's the only part in the film where we do have jump cuts. And it was one of those things where I put it in because it kind of looked cool to me. And then I was like, I'm probably gonna have to take this out later because I don't think I can make it work with the rest of the film. But I think it works because in the opening scenes, we're kind of doing the world building. We're setting up the world that we're living in. And so you're seeing these kind of propaganda signs that are around Chinese cities and construction sites that are these directives to citizens about how to behave and what to expect. Be a model citizen, work hard and your dreams will be rewarded. And so I was showing those signs, but then kind 
kind of showing the daily life of all of the people passing in front of the signs. People on bicycles, people with kids, people on strollers. And it made sense to do this jump cut to show like this message is being held steady by the Chinese government, by the CCP. And then we have all of these, this flow of different types of citizens coming and leaving the frame. That's similar to saying you weren't sure about the first shot. It is a process. I'm really interested, especially for young documentarians. They're like, oh, I thought I needed to decide all those things up front. You're not, you're discovering them. The filmmaking process itself, the shooting, the researching was a discovery process, but the editing itself was really a discovery process. A lot of times I'd feel a lot of internal resistance about how to go forward with it since it felt so high stakes and I didn't know what the answer was, especially since with a film like this that doesn't have a story that's already happened, it's a story you're discovering as you're crafting it, you don't know if it's gonna work until it works. And that's a terrifying bet that you're taking. <laughs> and, you know, for young people, it's okay to fail. And I think failure is part of the whole process, too. It's important to make films that don't turn out well, but it's still something that you have to go through and just be willing to fail. But that makes it scary because you, you never know if it's going to work out. So when I did bump up against these moments of resistance and not knowing where to go forward with the cut anymore, what I would do, and this is like such a practical thing, is I would just set up timers for like even 20 minutes or 40 minutes where I couldn't look at my phone or browse the internet and just would watch footage and see what spoke to me and just watch my cut over and over and see what spoke to me and nine times out of ten when you're setting an intention and giving yourself a set amount of time in order to just sit with the uncertainty of what your footage is you're gonna have ideas just come up naturally if you like really protect that block of time. What was the schedule like for the editing part? From when you finished shooting or the body of it to when you actually had a finished film, what was the, that time period? We went to China four times and between each trip, I would come back, get all of the footage translated. I'm not a fluent Mandarin speaker, so we had to work with translators to get everything translated. And then I would start making cuts. And also part of it was about fundraising, so working on different cuts for the grants and everything. So it's really hard to say. The editing started from early on, like 2018. And I was editing up until, oh, this was one of the things I wrote down that I thought was funny. As an editor, it feels like your work is never done, especially since I was the director as well. It was so hard hard for me to let go of it. I literally was making edits until my colorist came over to my house, I edit from home, and had to physically take the hard drive out of my hands. And he was coming in like 20 minutes and I was still making little changes. And when was that date? I think this was about May 2021. We submitted the film to Sundance and it didn't get in. And it not getting in was actually helpful for me to go back and open up my cut and just keep editing. Because when we submitted, I thought I was done. And then when we got the rejection, it freed me up to keep going and to actually even take more risks. I think that the film became more creative after that. I was able to lean into these moments of free association or these kind of more psychedelic aspects of the film after I had the ground level structure set up. I love some of those moments too. It makes the film so cinematic. Let's talk about score and maybe what you tempt with. So Dan Deacon, who's a fabulous musician, scored this and he also he scores films as well, in addition to being a musician, obviously. He was the first person that we approached early on in the process after the first shoot. 
Because of that, we were able to score with his stems. So he made some temp music for us, and I was able to use that. And that was great, because there's that whole thing about people getting too attached to the temp music. I mean, that actually happened to me a little bit, because I was using a score that he had done from Rat Film to try to edit to, which was kind of weird to use like his score from a different movie. It didn't last that long, because otherwise I would have gotten too attached to it. And luckily, you know, he came on board and then was able to give us some Stems. You know, the process of the scoring and the editing were kind of happening simultaneously, which was really fun. So as the cut would evolve, so would his score, and we would send each other back and forth, and it was this interesting feedback loop. Have you seen Pawakatsi or Koyanaskatsi? I have, yes, the Katsi trilogy. There were moments in your film that I thought of either visual images or sense, uh, some kind of sense that, that was similar. Did you have any films that you were you looked at that you felt you were driving a muse from? Yeah, Godfrey Reggio definitely is a film hero of mine, but he's not someone who I would explicitly reference because it almost seemed too grand to even presume. <laughs> I mean, not that the other ones, other references weren't great, but I actually wasn't expecting people to pick up on that as much as they do. So I think it's really cool that people bring it up a lot, but I was more rooted in this observational tradition. So Frederick Wiseman films and other observational filmmakers, it's really uh, allowing these unexpected and poetic moments of human interaction to emerge and just to really be able to pick those moments out and elevate them into a film. I mean, there's actually one scene in a Wiseman film called The Store, which takes place in Dallas in 1984, where these female shopkeepers are being trained about the proper way to smile and present themselves to customers. And there's a scene in Ascension that mirrors that, which I didn't realize until after I shot it, <laughs> um, but it's the woman at the manor etiquette school where they're learning how to put on the right kind of smile in order to get ahead in the workplace. So a lot of echoes there that I thought were really cool. And then more formalist styles of filmmaking, Our Daily Bread by Nicholas Gerhalter and Working Man's Death by Michael Glauerger are some other more visual formalistic references. And I try to treat it almost like a narrative film where it's not the information or the facts that are being conveyed that is the priority. It's creating this sort of cinematic world and unique language to the structure of the film. Let's talk about that structure. You talked about it a little bit how there are kind of three parts to it, but let's talk about the modules and deciding which modules would follow which modules. Because like you said, they're modular. They could be moved and they could be shuffled. Why did they go in the order that they did? There was so much back and forth and feedback, and I was really lucky to be supported by a lot of grants and labs. So within those labs, I did maybe three or four, and some of them included the True-False Rough Cut Retreat, IFP Lab, and Film Independent Lab. There was a lot of mentors and other fellows who were watching the cut and giving feedback. And I was just reading through my notes to prepare for this. And I realized there's an art to receiving feedback, especially when you receive so much of it. Since I was the main editor, I did have my partner and producer on this project as an additional editor. He was there also as a sounding board and really intimately helping like craft scenes with me. But since we didn't have like an outside main editor, it was mostly me, having all of these other voices around was helpful and was giving me outside perspective. 
but it's also important to know when to listen and when not to listen. And there'd be times where I'm getting a million different reactions from the same thing. And at that point, you know that you're done because you can't please all of them. You kind of just have to choose which one you like the most. One of the biggest humps that I had to go over with the editing was, so I mentioned the film is loosely structured in three parts. The first part takes place in factories. So audience members, they think that we're watching a film about factories. How can you make a film that takes place in all these factories and then suddenly we're in water parks or suddenly we're in a school for butlers? Like, how could that possibly make sense? So it was the transition into the other parts and figuring out how to make that transition that was the most challenging. So part one ends in this sex doll factory, which felt like the most logical conclusion to everything we'd seen before it. Why was that the most logical? <laughs> it was the most exploitative kind of idea about creating this replica of female bodies in order to be exploited. And yet there was so much paradox within that scene. There's this camaraderie and tenderness that the female workers demonstrate towards one another and attention to detail with the dolls as well. It's not like the other factory scenes you see before. These dolls are actually artisanal, so there's a lot of high-level skill involved. One challenge with that too was that scene was just so striking that I was worried that it would overshadow everything else, and that the rest of the film would just feel less powerful in comparison to it. So within that scene, I had to actually pare it back a bit. I mean, there was things that were far more outrageous, but it just wouldn't have fit within the same movie, if that makes sense. So we had to get out of the sex doll factory, and I had a few different versions of different scenes that came after it, but the one that kind of landed on was this cafeteria scene where it's mostly women who are eating at lunches, and then this factory training scene where it still sort of feels like we're in a factory, so we could still be in the same world, but people are being trained in order to have this orientation to kind of level up within in their factories. And so that sort of training segment overlapped with the next segment that comes after it, which is entrepreneurial training. And that's slowly leading the audience by the hand, I think, to suggest maybe this isn't just about factories and labor, maybe this is about something bigger. And I like the idea of an audience kind of not even realizing that we've left that world until we're far away from it. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly the, that's the effect it had. That's yeah. very impressive. I love that. So, right, that transition, especially from the first act to the second act, that had to be the hardest one to go. How do we move on? If that doesn't work, then the whole film doesn't work. You know, then it's just a film in three different parts that doesn't belong together. And this goes back to what I was saying before. You don't know if you're going to be able to pull it off until you do. And that's kind of the scariest part about it. But also, we initially had chapter headings in the film. I feel like people have really strong opinions about chapter headings. Some people love it and some people feel like it's a movie, not a book. Why would you do that? But I had maybe five chapter headings and I organized the different module sections around the headings. And a lot of people were like, you don't need those. And I came to think about them as training wheels or scaffolding which I could take out after I had everything. So it was sort of like in the back of my mind, I knew what the chapter heading is. I know what the organizing principle is behind this chapter, but we don't need the audience to know that. It's something that you sort of feel more. And then when taking the chapter headings out, I was allowed to let myself slip in these kind of other unexpected visual moments between the scenes. There's this one scene of these video gamers who are in an internet cafe playing video games all day and 
then someone says this line that's from a game, but also this old idiom that has to do with phoenix feathers. And then we see a close-up of ostrich feathers. <laughs> and then we pull back and we realize that we're in a petting zoo. And this is an ostrich that we're looking at. Another is the CEO of a company during their end-of-year gala is talking about the Chinese dream and being rewarded if you work hard. On top of that dialogue, I had scenes from an aquarium. Just things where I didn't know if I could get away with them until I pushed that hard. And sometimes I could and sometimes I couldn't. It's like things like this, you have to earn it. And then once you earn it, it feels great if it can pay off. So the starfish comes right before the water park section. And it's just this like long, lazy shot of a starfish but the lights slowly start to change and the water is just moving a little bit and then the score comes on under it. And something about it all together for me just worked and I felt an inherent tension in it. And I wasn't sure if an audience member was gonna feel that or not, but I did, so I kept it in. One of the things that you mentioned that I wanna get back to because I really love this discussion is you said there's an art to taking criticism. You need to remove yourself from that, right? You have to be able to look at a comment that someone makes about your editing or your film in your case and if it's true, you've got to have the right attitude to be able to accept it. Yeah, there's an art to receiving and there's also an art to giving. People aren't always good at expressing what they mean. Mm. I've heard it described this way, the note beneath the note. It's being able to diagnose what the underlying issue is. When you understand what the underlying issue is, there's usually many solutions mm. for it. And I think the art of editing or the art of directing of just making any sort of creative decision is being able to select which solution you think works best for you. Some people are just trying to make a different movie than you are and you have to realize which notes are about your movie. Right. There was one thing that I tried out that everyone was like, that is not working. I thought it was a mistake. At the rare earth mineral mines at the end, those landscape shots, I did try to put some voiceover from some of the water parks earlier on, mm. creating this sort of dissonance, but it either wasn't landing or it just felt too sarcastic. I don't want anything to come off as like judgmental. It's supposed to be we're kind of all in this together. That idea immediately was taken off, but I bring it up because I think it's important to try these sort of pushing the boundaries things and see how far you can go before it just breaks. Yeah, I love that. Did you use story cards on the wall? I did, especially since it's in different chapters. I had just note cards with different chapter headings and beneath those chapter headings, the different kind of individual scenes or visual images that I had in there. A lot of it was organized in this crazy structure. I think I mentioned one of the cards was just called Starbucks. And even though Starbucks doesn't appear in the movie, it just meant something to me and China. And so just holding that idea of what does Starbucks embody, this sort of Western, convenience. It just, for me, sparked a lot of other ideas. I really want to talk about those transitions because it seems like transitions would be a hard thing, especially between some of those modules. Can you talk about going from the factory workers to the influencers? Or there's one that I really loved, the transition between the bodyguards and the butler school. Yeah, so that's actually my favorite cut in the film. <laughs> Um, which, it should be, I think. Yeah, I think I might have even discovered it a little bit by accident. So the two scenes that we're talking about are, there's a bodyguard school where mostly young men are being trained in order to become bodyguards. And their um, ideal kind of end job is protecting a very wealthy individual. But in reality, a lot of them end up going on to work as security guards um, for malls or restaurants or whatever. And then the scene following that is a butler school 
where people are being trained to be butlers. Also, the um, their ideal kind of end goal is to serve a private family, an individual wealthy person. But a lot of them work at high-end restaurants afterwards, etc. But the idea f of the two is the new Chinese elite and the types of service jobs that the new Chinese elite create and what these training schools look like and the ideologies underneath them. There's so much physical violence and masculinity and physicality in the in the bodyguard school. Mm -hmm. And then the butler school, it seems very refined and there's classical music and white tablecloth. And yet the two of them are really serving the same idea. And so there's this cut in the bodyguard school, which ends where these guys are all beating each other up, basically. There's this guy who's kind of on the floor and everyone's hitting him with sandbags. And then there's a hard cut. I love hard cuts. There's a hard cut into the next scene, no explanation or anything. And we're, boom, in the middle of a Butler training school scene. The two images almost twin together where it's similar framing and the two are almost like tableau shots that could almost look like a painting to me. And I knew those two scenes were gonna go next to each other but I didn't know those two shots were going next to each other. That was a happy accident and I kept it in. It's this kind of hitting of two different ideas together to create something new. In the influencer section, there's a really interesting thing that you did with sound design where they're talking about wanting to succeed as kind of a brand and then eventually it mixes out to the score coming up and swallowing them up and they're still talking but you can't hear what they're saying. Why? And talk to me about that sound design. Yeah, I would say that ultimately this film is something that is more meant to be experienced and felt rather than understood. And so this shot is this influencer who's selling shoes and she's holding the shoe that's really close to her face and talking to the camera and there's a ring light in her face that you can see. I thought it was such a beautiful shot, even though this shot is about cheap products that you can buy online. There was this unexpected beauty to it and I wanted to really highlight that. And rather than focusing on all of the things and the specific things that she's talking about, sort of zone out to the bigger picture. And I think when we kind of take out the dialogue and bring up the score, it allows the mind to make different types of associations that you normally wouldn't. You've worked on a bunch of different positions on documentaries. You've been a DP, you've done editing, just editing. You've done directing, obviously, producing. How does your editing skill and experience speak into those other jobs? While I'm shooting, I'm always thinking, well, maybe not as much as I wish I were later, but I am <laughs> thinking about the end process and the editing, and so I always think it's important to get certain establishing shots, etc. The thing that's more nuanced is the length of the time that I hold the shots. For Ascension in particular, we shot everything mostly on sticks, so it's all static shots, and it's the kind of film where the moment the camera moves, the shot is broken, and I can't use it anymore. So months later, looking at footage that I would shoot in the editing room, I would see the camera moves and I would get so frustrated with my past self and just <laughs> try to set a rule for myself where I'd have to hold each shot for at least like one or two minutes without touching the camera. But it's hard when there's so many things going on and you want to try to catch as many things as you can. The thing about that is you can end up with a lot of shots that could work, but nothing that just works perfectly and so you're gonna have to make sacrifices when you're shooting so I was just trying to be as disciplined as possible 
in terms of not touching the camera, even if it would mean missing out on another action. For the most part, we used one camera, but sometimes we had two cameras, and we tried to cut it so that it looked like we always had just one camera. But there were times where I would cut to a different angle, and usually it wasn't necessary. I realized that for my film, each different angle had to be motivated by something very specific, and if there wasn't any reason to show a different angle, it was better to just stay with that one take. Tell me about editing from a technical standpoint. You chose to edit in Premiere. Why, why Premiere? I find Premiere really intuitive. I enjoy working in that space. I mean, from a very just logistical standpoint, it's really easy to link between the proxies and the originals. And in a film like mine that was really visually driven, I would toggle back and forth a lot. I'd see an idea of what it would kind of look like, but then seeing the full resolution, I could imagine it even better, and that helped kind of inform the editing a lot. I've edited in Avid before. I think there's more of a learning curve for it. I mean, once you get it, then people love it. I got into it for a while, and then I kind of got out of it, and then I wasn't as motivated to get back into it. <laughs> what are some of the other things that you like about Premiere Pro, just the way that you're able to edit, the way that your ideas are able to flow, other than proxies? Yeah, I really like the project and binge structures. I mean, I had so many cuts too. I had like eight assemblies, nine rough cuts, 12 fine cuts, 13 different versions of fine two cuts. <laughs> but in terms of bins and searching for things, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was very intuitive. When you had that many sequences, did you keep them all in the same project or did you? All in the same project. That is a big project file. Yeah. Did you use Frame.io on this? I used Frame.io with my sound designer, Gisela. She and I used Frame.io in order for me to give her specific notes on the sound design. What I like about Frame.io is that you can actually draw in it. I would not think that talking to a sound designer you would need to draw on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was very specific things. Like this film's sound was so essential to it and I wanted to get as much first person audio as possible as well. So we would mic people even in situations where you don't think that they necessarily need to be mic'd because they're not talking. There's this one scene in a plastic water bottle factory where this young woman is putting labels on plastic water bottles and she takes a break to unscrew a thermos of water. And just hearing that unscrewing of the lid was so key to me to keep into that scene. So we focus attention to that and of course there's this paradox of she's in a plastic water bottle factory but she's bringing her own thermos to drink from. Hearing the unscrewing of the lid just gives it such a visceral sense of it and so what I could do in Frame.io is I could literally draw a circle over that thermos and say like this is the specific thing to pay attention to within this scene. Is this your first time using Frame.io? I had used it before to give notes on other cuts for things. Mm -hmm. As a producer or director or something? Or? I can't remember. I think as a producer maybe I was giving notes on a cut and used Frame.io. How do you maintain objectivity when you're the director and the editor? Because I think being an editor, that's part of your job with the director as being objective. Well, I think that's why the, the labs and the mentorship and having all of these different people giving me notes was very helpful, but also taking breaks and this is kind of random, but like physical activity, like exercise and doing yoga, a lot of ideas would always come to me during those periods of time. Because editing, you're, you're not moving, you're just sitting so still, it's so stagnant. And so I'm one of those people whose ideas come to them when I'm physically moving. So I would try to work in periods of exercise into my editing days. Mm. Another technique for getting distance too, I found was just watching it even with one other person. Mm. 
it becomes a completely different thing that you're watching. I don't know if you get that too, yeah. but watching it alone oh, versus 100%. watching it with even an audience of one person, it just completely shifts how I'm seeing the material. There's a weird thing that happened to me where I would notice every time I exported a version, I would automatically want to make changes. You can see the mistakes more clearly once it's like flattened and baked into a final thing. Mm -hmm. Then you can see the flaws. I would love to talk about a couple of specific scenes and we've got a little iPad with some scenes. Could you walk us through a couple of them for us? Yeah. So this is one of the water park scenes that I was talking about that comes towards the end that has to do with consumerism and leisure. And it shows the grandiosity of this whole machine that we're living in. And I think of this particularly as also a structured kind of fun. You can see that there's actually like different rows where people are standing. And in this scene, the announcer is saying, we hope all of you students can get into your dream school. And so this fit into the theme of ascension and upwards mobility, even though it was taking place in this kind of leisure water park area. So thematically, it made sense for the film. And this film, has so many different ways that it could be edited and so many different motivators that push the edit. Mm. So we have this grandiose landscape of this enormous water park with this overhead drone shot. I thought that that kind of paired towards the end of the film, this rare earth mineral mine, which is also this grandiose landscape, but it's this scarred earth kind of feeling. And yet the two of them felt like they belonged in the same film together. And so when trying to figure out how to structure things, I would wonder if these are the types of places that I should put up against each other. And there was an earlier cut where actually they were next to each other, but then this became less about the visual grandiosity and more about this energy of excitement and celebration. And so then that's why we actually are in a club right after. And this shot is not in a water park. It's a completely different location. It's in a club, but it was capturing that energy. So tell me a little bit about the water theme and why have those kind of themes that aren't explicitly stated in a movie? This was another one of those things that I didn't know if I was going to be able to pull it off or not until it was finished. But throughout shooting, I noticed that water kept coming up. And so I was thinking of water in this almost metaphysical sense of this most basic elemental life form that we all need to survive. But just the ways in which humanity and capitalism kind of manipulates it or co-ops it, chlorinating, controlling. And so something that makes me personally sad is I think that in late capitalism, it's cheaper and more convenient to experience a simulation of nature rather than the actual thing. And so that's why there's a scene in a, one of the largest buildings in the world, which is in Chengdu, there's this indoor water park theme where the announcer says something like, I hope you can enjoy the waves here and feel close to the sea and the sun. Because to actually go to the sea is more costly than to go to a mall and experience a simulation of it. So a lot of it was like exploring these different simulations. And then at the end, we do have a water scene and it's one of the only times we see a natural body of water that I feel juxtaposes where we see people outside of the age of working. And it's the only time where we don't have that kind of structured fun. So that contrasts this kind of water park scene. And in terms of what's the point of putting in a theme that an audience member might not get, I think that even if it's not directly said, it might seep in in some sort of unconscious way that people aren't even aware of. And I'm okay with people taking away their own ideas and meanings from it as well. I think that's what art is about too. Let's take a look at another scene. Yeah, we kind of get into the sex doll factory scene where we're seeing close up of toes and a bunch of bodies hanging and what looks 
to me like body bags, so it feels very menacing. And it's kind of striking to see these women who seem sort of lighthearted and are actually even laughing here and kind of bouncing around happily, looking like they're joking with each other. And so that's just what I love in terms of talking about these paradox that's built into the scene already. On the face of it is in a menacing kind of exploitative space, but then the people who are working here sort of form this camaraderie with one another and are helping one another kind of get by. Let's talk about the sleeping scene. There's a scene where it's just various people sleeping. There is a section of the film that's just people taking a nap. I mean, I'm not gonna pretend like I know what that means, but it could mean a lot of different things. And in terms of the structure of editing, one thing that I told myself, one potential line of thought I could go down is um, if this film is about the Chinese dream, here's a scene where all these people are sleeping. What if everything that comes afterwards is a dream? And that's part of why I think it becomes sort of psychedelic afterwards. You see people at the top of a water slide getting ready to go down. And there is this sort of Alice in Wonder-like feel about it. I mean, for me, there was just so many different intentions and different reasons why, but it was important to at least be able to articulate an idea why as a starting point and let it take on its own life from there. The film is asking who benefits from it and who, who benefits from capitalism in general and who is left out of that dream as well. I think that subtly maybe this whole idea of people napping and, and dreaming is maybe in the back of people's minds. It's bringing that question up. Sure, and I remember one of the shots was a guy kind of in a pod. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out as I was watching that, how do you know when you're done with this shot? It's a locked off camera. How long am I gonna sit on this shot of this guy sleeping in a pod? Right. And with that pod, I mean, I was thinking about how it's stressing this focus on efficiency and because that was a pod at a tech startup where people can take naps during the day. And, you know, sleeping is such an intimate, most private human moment. And then when we try to make it most efficient and put it into the workforce, it just brings to question all of the ideas I was talking about in my film related to the paradox of progress, of economic progress. It's interesting you thought about that one specifically, maybe because there's no movement in it. Because in the other sleeping shots, there's some sort of tension, like maybe someone breathing or like a chest going up and down. But in that one, it's very static. So how long did I know? Probably the music or something. Let's talk a little bit about the crypto shot and its reason for being there and why you had that in the film. There's a few moments actually where a cryptocurrency mine shows up, but most people will not know what it is, which I had a hard time with at first because it was really hard to access these locations. And it was important to the idea of the film since I love the paradox of the cryptocurrency mines where it's these physical sites, again, of new types of wealth creation. It's the cutting edge of global finance, but they're in these totally remote mountainous regions that you can't find at all. So just the juxtapositions there was super interesting to me. I, I found a way to just give a quick visual blip of it and weave it into it. And even though you don't know it's cryptocurrency mine, I'm hoping that there's something sort of dystopian about these like machines that are coming. And I put that right before this scene of these wealthy elites who are having this dinner party together, like a nod to this kind of new money and wealth being created, even though it's in a completely different world. I think China in general is already a hot button issue. People see scenes there and already have lots of strong 
strong opinions one way or the other. And I was hoping to present images that can allow for a multiplicity of meanings to arise and without people having to immediately take a concrete meaning away. Impose meaning on it. Right, but allow for contradictions to exist within the same shot even. One example I was thinking of is this Trump paraphernalia factory where we, we're seeing Keep America Great being embroidered onto a piece of fabric that's being sold and so we're seeing that bringing the audience one way. But then the next shot after that is also a sewing machine, but the sewing machine is making unicorns and flower patterns. And it's all in the same process, all in the same factories, and your mind just goes somewhere completely different. So I just kind of like that emotional whiplash of those cuts together. And on that note, I just want to thank you for a great interview. Thank you so much. Good luck at the Oscars. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. This interview is also available on Frame.io's YouTube channel, with clips and fantastic production values provided by Frame.io's Prod Squad. Special thanks to them. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to my guest, Jessica Kingdon. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. And so you don't miss out on the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And keep an eye out on Frame.io's YouTube channel for upcoming video episodes of the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. <music>